Welcome to the Three Lines of Defence podcast, the show that provides in-depth discussion into the world of audit, compliance and risk. We bring valuable insights, market information and career advice from industry leaders. Here's your host, Mark Enticott. On today's show, we have Phil Pakes. Phil is a Chief Audit Executive at AMP. Phil has an extensive career in internal audit, including holding a range of key leadership positions. Previously, he was Managing Director, Chief Auditor at Citi in Hong Kong and Country Head of North Asia ex-Japan at Deutsche Bank. Phil, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mark. I'd like to start off with your early life. Can you share with me a little bit more about where you grew up? I can. Um, So I I grew up in the UK. So I was from a a city called Derby. I I, I grew up to uh, a fairly ordinary family. So father was a policeman, mother was a nurse. Um, I went to school there. And uh, so so, so basically my whole family lived in the same street. Um, So we had numbers 15, 17 and 19 of the same street. So it's all a little bit uh, close to home, literally. Small community. Mm. Right, okay. And so when you look at uh, your career, what what made you actually develop your career within banking and financial services and then also specifically within internal audit? So I think um, my skill at school was I was very good at mathematical subjects. Um, so I topped my class and my school and, and my county as well at, um, at these maths exams that they, they used to run. So they, they ran them as a... Um, you know, the whole of your uh, cohort uh, across the whole county would, would sit the same exam. Um, so I knew I had a skill there. Um, so I went into university doing a mathematical-based degree, which is physics. Um, this was in the Cold War times, so in the early 80s. Um, so I thought about um, a career um, in the armed services, basically, to begin with. Um, but then... Uh, thought better of it and became a, a, an auditor instead. So uh, around about that time, all of the public accounting firms were hiring people f- from maths background because they had some research that showed that we had a better success rate in exams. Um, so it's pretty easy. So I took a, a few interviews with the, the chartered firms, um, got a couple of offers, chose one, and then went touring around Europe for the, for the summer and uh, didn't really give it another thought. Uh, until I turned up in uh, London working for Coopers and Librand um, two months later. And how long were you working with Coopers for? So I worked in London with them for four years and then I moved out to Sydney with them for four years. Um, So in terms of breaks that came my way, that was really the the first break I had. So, um, So the four years I had in London were great. Um, although it's difficult studying in London and trying to um, absorb uh, everything there is to offer in the place as well. Um, but I think because I came from that background of having all my family in one street, I always wanted to travel. Um, so initially I um, applied to, well, I wanted to go overseas and uh, the, the first role that was available was in uh, Zimbabwe, in Bulawayo. Um, and I was in the Keepers and Library and Recruitment Office um, waiting for an interview for that. And then an Australian partner came through um, and I was waiting and waiting. And in the end, the, the interview didn't go ahead because there was a monsoon in um, Bulawayo. Um, and while I was hanging around, he, he said, uh, if you can 
make your way out to Sydney by Christmas. And this was in October 91. If you can get there by Christmas, I'll give you a job. Because um, they were working on the, uh, the, the float of GIO, um, which is an Australian insurance company. So I said, done. And, and that was it. So, so purely by chance, really, um, and, and persistence of wanting to follow a dream of working overseas, um, I found myself in the right place at the right time. And a Sydney partner took me out. So that was great. So, so I stayed another four years in Coopers in Sydney. Um, and then I moved, as so many people do, um, to work for a, ma- a main client, and that was Bankers Trust. And was Australia ever on the radar? It was. So, so Australia would have been my first choice because when I lived in London, uh, the two flatmates I lived with uh, had taken a year off to travel to Australia. So they already had their visas sorted and they were coming here. Um, and I was going to be left behind. So, so really I was looking after the, um, the flat. And when I had the opportunity to go to Bulawayo, I thought, well, it's better than nowhere. Um, but I got lucky. So I just got lucky. And, and, uh, it was meant to be. It was meant to be. <clears throat> And so you, you automatically went within working in the insurance area. Was that something that as soon as you started working back in, in, that, back in sort of the early days, did they have the areas of specialisation within Coopers that they do now with, with a separate banking and financial services team? They did. So, um, so I think, again, because I had a mathematical background and I had a physics degree, um, they preferred to allocate us to the... To, to the banks and insurance companies on the financial services group. Um, so that wasn't really a, 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 a choice I made. It was, I was allocated to a, to a, a banking group. Um, and the first types of clients that I worked on in London were, they were all investment banks. Um, most of them are not around anymore, but there was things like Dresner Kleinwort and uh, Shearson Lehman, which I, wow, it's all I changed. Became Lehman Brothers eventually, but um, but it was, it was that type of thing. Um, the first job I ever did was um, at a small Iranian bank next door to the Iranian embassy. So one of my first experiences was, um, you know, the big firefight going on next door when I was sent out on my first job. Um, and, you know, seeing all the police running around and, you know, the, the, the rest is history. There was a, you know, a policewoman that was killed out there as well. So this was, all, this was my first experience of audit, really, in, in London and uh, being sent out on a job. So things were perhaps a little bit more hazardous then. A lot of people start their careers in audit. I certainly started my career at PwC in, in audit. What made you continue on that audit path and then obviously move into internal audit when you know you, you have so many other options as well uh, from big four to, to select from? So it's a good question. So um, I suppose the first thing is I was good at it. So well, <clears throat> the exams that we used to do in those days – there were modules, so you, you did a graduate conversion course, so you would do um, tax audit, financial accounting, I think, and uh, one other thing, whatever it was. Ethics or? Something like that. Uh, I forget, uh, management yeah. accounting perhaps yeah. it was. Um, and I always topped audit or came near the top of the audit um, exams and was pretty ordinary at everything else, so I figured it was a good place to stay. Um, and the other thing is, with, with audit, uh, you were very mobile, so wanting to move overseas, it facilitated that very well. So the challenge for me in 1991 was, uh, the, it was there was a recession on, and it was around about the time of the first um, Kuwait-Iraq war. 
Um, so there wasn't really an awful lot going on in terms of uh, international transfers. It had been fairly slow for a couple of years. Um, but really, I was the in the first group of the new wave of um, exchanges that, that, that went on. So after I came to Australia, that every year there was a, a whole bunch more for the, for the next few years. When you look at your career, has there been a particular mentor or several mentors that have really helped develop your career and, and leadership style? Yeah, so, so actually the, the guy I met that brought me to Sydney in the first place, David Prothero, so he's a retired Keepers and Libram partner now, but he, he taught me a, a lot, I guess, about um, taking opportunities when, when they come to you, um, but he also taught me some rules as well. Um, which I, I haven't always stuck to, but I've I've tried to because I think he was right. So he used to have rules about um, starting early and finishing early as well, and about knowing when your um, when your day really should end. And at a certain point, um, the law of diminishing returns kicks in. So he, he would always say, start at seven, finish at seven. Never work any longer than that. No weekends. Uh, nothing like that because it'll just um, it'll just make you tired and you'll become less efficient and everything will take longer. So that was quite a good tip, and uh, I think that came true for me. So when I when I worked for Citibank, I, I had a global role and I was performing that role from partly from Hong Kong and partly from Sydney, um, and I would work through the night sometimes. So really not obeying that rule at all. Um, and it's not good for you. So, so it does make you tired. It it um, slows you down. And you know, being at AMP now, where most most of my days are sort of seven till five or seven till six, um, it's much better. So it's good for your health and good for your mental health as well. Has there been a significant turning point in your career that has that you look back at now and and think that really helped position to me where I am now? In your career? Um, yeah. So so I think even before LinkedIn was around, I was pretty good at networking. So I'd always volunteer for things. So um, before I moved from Sydney to Hong Kong, so I, so I moved out to Hong Kong in 2004, um, and I came back to uh, Sydney just earlier this year, uh, sorry, earlier last year, uh, 2019. So I was in, in Hong Kong for 15 years. Um, but what I did uh, in Sydney and in Hong Kong was I made sure I was part of a, a banking audit network group. Uh, and in Hong Kong, I actually ran it for 10 of the 15 years I was there. Um, and that was good. So it taught, taught you a lot about your peers. Um, so there's a lot of uh, information exchange between those groups. And it taught you a lot as well about uh, everything, really. So what everyone was getting paid, what everybody was doing at the weekends, uh, everything so uh, and that network stays with you and then when LinkedIn came along it just kind of formalized everything um, but one of the sort of the most important lessons I learned is how you build your your personal brand and um, how you sell yourself and make sure that people know that you're you're there very important isn't it yep when you I mean throughout your roles that you've done you've obviously had plenty of significant challenges in each of the roles is there one particular component in your career where you look at it and think that was a really key challenge at that point in time and and how did you overcome and deal with that challenge so probably while I was in Hong Kong and 
uh, when I first joined Citibank Audit, that was the, the biggest challenge. So um, City had been through some challenges of its own. It had completely uh, redesigned its audit function. So, so amongst the banking and financial services world, it had a mandate to build a 2,000-strong global function and an ambition to be rated strong, uh, the only strong bank amongst the big banks, um, rated by the, the, the OCC and the, the regulators there. So I turned up, um, managed to uh, land a, a role as a managing director running the ICG audit group, which is essentially the corporate bank, so the financial markets and trade finance and all that kind of stuff. Uh, for Asia. Um, and when I arrived in the role, it became apparent to me that things were very much in their early stages. And the, uh, you know, the org design for the region had seven managing directors on it. And I was only the second one in. And the first one was already on their way out. So essentially, I was covering multiple roles. I was um, covering the role that I took, um, which should have had uh, over 100 people reporting to it. Uh, I was covering the regional head of audit role. I, I covered that for 18 months, and that would have had over 400 people reporting to it. Uh, I was also the head of audit for Hong Kong. So the Hong Kong audit team uh, was designed with 90 auditors in there, um, and we only had 10. So it's quite a lot of work to do. So I kind of landed in this empty building and with a mandate to, to build that function up. And how did you go about that? Uh, it did a lot of interviews, so, so there's a lot of people to hire. Um, so the irony really was most of the auditors the, the group had were quality assurance auditors, so they were kind of checking that everything was okay with the rest of the team, and of course it wasn't because there was no team. Um, so you have to start somewhere really, and, and uh, AMP has been a little bit the same for me, uh, in that you know, you're kind of starting from a, a low base but trying to build a, a great team up quickly. So the important thing is to start with the leaders and you have to pick the, not the best, you don't have to necessarily pick the best people in the world, but you have to get the right people for the job. And there are certain people that are just designed for particular roles. Um, so the art really is just winkling those out and that's where the network comes in. Um, so if, if I can't find them through the recruiters, I can probably find them myself because um, between Hong Kong and you know, my, my last role was a global role, so I've, I've met lots and lots of people. And uh, even though they may not be the person for the job, they might know somebody. So I'm, I'm fairly active on, on all forms of social media. That's where the networking comes in as well, as yeah. you said earlier. LinkedIn, WhatsApp, Facebook, Insta, they're, they're all over there. And there's always somebody who knows someone. So um, in every sort of role I go into, I try and make sure that network's still there and working for me. What do you think are the key attributes of an effective leader? Um, I think making commitments and doing, doing as you say is important. Um, but also everybody I deal with, I try and imagine I'm them talking to me. Uh, and Because I've been in all those positions as well. So all of my, all of my staff, I, I imagine if, if, it, if I was them talking to my boss, what, what do I want from them? And you want something that you're going to remember and something that's going to... Uh, improve your day so so for me the important thing is just just treating people as you'd like to be treated yourself um so i, I know a lot of my my team um, at, at amp they they need a work-life balance 
So, so we work very hard during the day, but we're very, very flexible on you know, if people have emergencies and they need time off, that's all good. And we know people need to be stimulated, so we make sure we have an active uh, training course and we're trying to embrace technology as best we can and people are interested in that. So they, you know, they kind of grow, grown up with uh, you know, mobile phones and iPads and tinkering with stuff and we want, to, want them to keep doing that. Um, because ultimately um, the, the, the goal for internal audit is to uh, automate every, everything that we can, really. So, so ideally you'd have um, systems in banks that self-audit themselves and you just need a, uh, an auditor to make sure everything's working and that you know, no one's corrupted the, the code, that type of thing. So we're a, a way away from that goal yet, but it's quite fun getting to, to the end point. What do you look for when you hire for your team? Um, so the, the talent pool that I look at, I can figure out fairly quickly whether they're qualified or not. So then it's really about the person. Um, so so my so, so unless I have a very, very specific role that needs a specialist, um, I'll have a look at the CVs and see what else they do. And so I'll look down at the, the, the bottom of the CV and just see what, um, what groups and forums they're, they're interested in, um, you know, if they've got any linkage to the institutes of uh, internal auditors, if that's their thing, and um, just somebody who's got a bit of get up and go about them as well. Um, so personally, I'm, I, I call myself an atypical auditor, and I think it's because internal audit's a fairly, fairly dry subject. Um, you have to do something that uh, fulfils that, that need to be... Uh, exciting every now and again so um, I find myself paragliding I buy, buy race racing motorcycles I, I've got fast sports cars as well um, but it kind of compensates for uh, every day that I'll spend looking at a risk control matrix or uh, reviewing an audit report or something like that so you know there's, there's a balance in life and, I, and those people are, are great because you know they're, they're not going to be sort of overly introverted and you know they've got a, got a little bit of um, ability to deal with uh, stakeholders which is really important audit has evolved from what i can see considerably since i did it back 20 odd years ago in that you're really now moving a lot more to data analytics w- what impact is that having on the type of people that you look for when you when you hire within a team, and it's also changed from the point of view that in the past, I think a lot of clients purely wanted someone who's done audit before. Whereas now, the mindset is, well, we kind of want someone who has worked in the business and understands the business side, and can really come in there and sort of learn the risk component um, and be able to identify the risks that sit within that business that they're auditing. Yep. So, so I'd say. Um Five or six years ago, it, it was relatively rare to see anybody in audit who had any data analytics background at all. And then there was an explosion uh, four or five years ago to, to different degrees. So, so I actually found that uh, City did it very well. So they went beyond data analytics. Um, they were into machine learning, natural language processing and robots as well. And they would build things in-house uh, use them once to make sure they worked and then roll them out to the businesses and um, that's the model we're trying to work towards with AMP as well. Uh, since I've been back in Australia, I've, I've found data analytics capabilities um, 
it's it's relatively common now. So 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 in my team, so there's uh, 29 of us in A and P audit, and we've got five or six people who are really crash hot on with it. Um, but what we've decided to do is to teach everybody the basics of, of data. So we've been running uh, Power BI training, for example, and uh, getting everybody up to have a base level knowledge of it. Um, but we want to go further than that. That's only 5% of the journey. Uh, we want them to understand how robots work and what happens in the business as well. So uh, AMP has this um, Amplify uh, initiative. So every, I think it's every May that we, we run this thing. And it's, um, it's all about innovation and new ways of doing things. So we're trying to leverage off that and bring that in, in-house into, into our team. Um, but it's very important. So uh, I, I think in future, if you don't have data analytics on your CV somewhere, um, it'll be hard to, to find a job in audit. I think it's going to be an essential. The robotics component you talk about, how, how does that tie into audit? Can you, can you explain a bit more about that? Yeah. So, so for, for some time, the, the business has had... Uh, various simple robots that they that they roll out, and, and, and robots quite a, a funky ro- funky word. Often it's a, just a complicated macro that that repeats a, a boring, repetitive process. Um, but there are routines that we can uh, create that will that they're almost like vaccines for control issues. So um, uh, again, if I think of City, the it was quite common there. For, so, so several years ago, uh, within audit, they created a routine that would look for toxic combinations. Um, so, you know, make a checker rules that, that shouldn't be in place that uh, could facilitate a, a fraud or just a loss. Um, and they developed routines um, running against the systems uh, that would identify any problems almost real time. So, so basically overnight... Um, and as far as an audit test went, uh, we never had to do it really because we just ran these routines all the time and it, it did all of the, the hard work for you. Um, we had some interesting meetings with the regulators and this is the US regulators and they would say to us that um, they wanted a world where um, you didn't really need auditors or controls because the systems had inbuilt stops in them. So anything that shouldn't go through would just be stopped at source. So um, a lot of the time that we spend looking at system development and rollout now is, is around that. So whether you can design a system that will just stop a control from failing in the first place, um, not one that kind of identifies it after the fact. And, and the example that we um, uh, we had before was, um, uh, so it's a, a previous employer's example, but for certain trading systems in the markets trading area, like gold trading, um, they would have controls built into those systems where you couldn't place a trade if somebody couldn't pay for it, but not in others. And there's no real logic why we'd done it in gold and not every not everything else. So, um, so it's trying to get to a, a playing field now where the systems do the work for you as well. How far are we away from that point where the systems will be able to stop real time? Uh, probably a little distance. So... So I'd say the shelf life of a, a financial services systems five or ten years. Um, so developers are looking at this now about how they build those controls in. Um, so so maybe another another ten years from now. So ten years from now, life will be very different. Data analytics will be ancient. It'll be the uh, the Sony Walkman of the uh, of the world, um, and you'll have this 
new technology that will do do a lot more for you. You'll still need auditors as drone operators to um, make decisions, but you won't need spreadsheets and tick and flick and those types of things. It's all happening. If you were restarting your career now, what would be one piece of advice that you would give to a younger version of yourself? It's interesting. So I've got uh, two or three younger versions of myself because my sons and my daughter have all just uh, finished university this year. Um, And they've all got very different interests. So one's in teaching, one wants to be a data scientist, which is interesting. And then the other one's in radio. Hey! So, uh, so, so, um, So the advice for them is, um, it's probably different from when I was their age. So um, my generation leaving school and university is in the 80s. You would look to get a job. And even then there were no jobs for life, but you'd expect to be there for a little while and you're very career focused. Um, Now my, my kids finishing university, they're in no hurry at all. So they're all taking time off and and uh, traveling and it's more about the experience um they've kind of given up on the dream of home home ownership and those types of things so so it's definitely not about finding a career and um saving enough money for a house so it's more it's more about traveling so so i think if i was doing it all again I'd, i'd probably have that outlook as well and i'd find a job doing something that i really really enjoyed um, so I did like travelling at first. I've, I've probably over-travelled in my career now, so I'm quite happy staying still. But um, I think for me, I'd, I'd probably do something in travel, maybe a pilot or something like that, something a bit different. I always wanted to be a pilot. Hmm. So I do paragliding, and that's kind of a, a bit of an ambition. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, the, the fast, fast bikes and fast cars, maybe, maybe a jet fighter pilot, something like that. That's the, the compromise, I think. Have you got your flying license? So I'm a PG2, so I'm a relative novice for paragliding, but I, I can fly. But it's a bit like having a P-plate. Um, so you have to be a little bit careful with paragliding because it's very uh, dependent on the, the wind and the weather. Um, so uh, at this moment, my paraglide is in two pieces and um, my ankle's just about in one piece. So I'm just kind of getting, getting myself fixed up to, to go again. So the irony, of course, is... Um, for someone who's done relatively well out of risk as a career, um, throwing myself off hilltops and down down racetracks on motorcycles is maybe not a smart thing to do, but it's just part of the uh, the equilibrium of life. I think everything balances itself out. Absolutely. The Banking Royal Commission has had obviously a massive impact on the banking financial services sector in Australia. Can you share with me some? insight as to what you think life will be post the Banking Royal Commission for people who work in the three lines of defence? Yep. So um, so the, the Banking Royal Commission um, took place really between the end of 2017 and through to about April 2019. Um, so I'd been in Hong Kong for about 15 years, but I saw a a precursor to it. So so I was involved with um, the rollout of the senior manager regime for City in the UK, which was a couple of years before. Uh, and I could see the lengths that they went to. And, and for, a, for a, global en- uh, a global corporation, it was very complicated, actually. So they had all of these delegations and pr- pretty much all of the, uh, the guys that were named as senior managers 
um, were documenting all of the meetings that they had and making sure that they that they knew who was ultimate who they relied on for certain pieces of uh, information um, because they were all terrified of the ramifications at the end, which could be uh, being disbarred or fined or or, or both. Um, so when the Royal Commission popped up and then subsequently Bear and uh, Seer that's coming in, um, I knew what we see in Australia as well. So, so, so it's a little bit similar, um, maybe not to that extreme. So um, it stopped being, you know, so, so, so banking and finance was, was a bit less fun when all this stuff came in because there was a, a ton of regulation. Um, but what it did do is, so I, I sign a, an accountability statement um, it's a good discipline because it reminds you what your job is, basically, and it, it reminds reminds you of all of it. So you might remember ninety percent of it day to day, but this you're signing off on hundred percent of the thing. So, um, so it's good from that perspective. Um, I suppose in terms of consequences uh, at the end, um, luckily uh, we, we've seen none of those yet. Uh, I guess I've only been back a few months, but uh, it's definitely changed the landscape and the way. Um, the financial services uh, businesses run because you know, accountability is the buzzword. So even within uh, organisations like AMP, there's a lot uh, of moves underway at the moment um, to make sure that people are accountable. So we've you know we've um, relaunched our purpose and our behaviours, um, and you know being accountable and taking action is one of those behaviours. Um, but also structurally, uh, wherever there was any grey areas, we're, we're cleaning that up to make sure that everybody understands uh, what their role is and who, who's responsible if it goes wrong. So it's all pretty uh, crystal clear at the moment, which is a good thing, I guess. So, so in the past, uh, that may not have been the case some some years ago. And what what do you see the impact from, say, specifically with audit? Do you see? audit functions growing over the next five years? What, what do you sort of see the impact of specifically the third line? Yep, so, so I know the functions are growing at the moment. So the, the boards are fairly generous with um, uh, approving headcount increases for, for internal audit. Uh, I think in Australia, um, so AMP's grown. So you know, the mandate I had here was to virtually double the, the size of the team that AMP had. Um, and there's still appetite for more auditors if, if the board wants them. Um, I know our competitors uh, the, in the big banks and the Macquarie's of the world are doing the same type of thing as well. So everything that I'm hearing is pointing to having uh, more auditors on the ground. Um, and I think in the end it comes back to the comfort level that the, the boards need. So the boards are very jittery. There's, a, there's an awful lot of um, attestations that they have to make and um, you know, consequences for them of things going wrong at the moment. Um, so from an audit perspective, it's great for us. It's pro- probably good for the, the second line as well, so the risk professionals, um, because the boards are hungry for assurance that things are okay. So there's a whole, especially with a, 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 like a, an, a, an A&P of the world, because, um, you know, we, we were on the stand for the uh, for the Royal Commission, so... April 2018 was a, a sort of a, a very dark month for AMP. We had um, yeah, fees for no service issue. We had uh, changes in the board, changes in senior management, um, and we're really doing everything we can now to fix all of that up. So 
Um, there's a there's a motto: if it's grey, we pay, and we're 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 trying to do the right thing now and trying to reinvent AMP. The expansion in audit, how much is that driven by regulators wanting the third line of defence to do deep dive into potential areas that they want further review in? Yeah, there's some of that. There's some of the um, CPSs and SPSs that are set up that um, create work for internal audit to do, so the CPS and SPS 220, so we're engaged a lot in that. Um, there's the codes of practices as well, so the, the relatively recent banking code of practice and life insurance code of practice. So there's work uh, involved in those too. Um, so yeah, there's there's quite a lot. So so it's quite easy to map out your uh, risk based audit plan for the year and find that at least half of it's absorbed by things you have to do, um, not necessarily things you want to do. So what we make a conscious effort to, to do at AMP is to try and get ahead of those regulations come in, coming in. So we'll uh, typically do a, a pre-implementation review before a regulation comes in just to make sure we're ready for it or the business is ready. And then we'll do a post-imp straight afterwards just to make sure it's working okay. Um, so d- dealing with superannuation as well, that's a, a bit of a hot potato at the moment. A lot of the, um, the banks uh, in... Australia have pulled out of advice and those types of things. Um, so AMP's got to get that right. So that's our sort of critical mission, really. Um, it's very highly regulated. There's a, it's a minefield, uh, really. Um, so if uh, AMP can get that right, it's uh, it's good for us. And, and we want to get it right. We want to try and do the right thing and uh, build this sort of whole of wealth solutions for individuals in Australia. Coming back to your passion, so you've talked about paragliding, you've talked about fast cars, motorbikes. Yep. Other passions? Labradoodles. <laughs> Labradoodles. So, so I've got a, I've got a dog, like my favourite dog ever, ever uh, Teddy the Labradoodle. They so, are beautiful dogs, aren't they? He's lovely, and I keep trying to persuade my wife to have another one, um, but she doesn't want two at once because she thinks we'll get kind of. Uh, fall out of love with the old one who's um, a bit slow on his feet now. Uh, How old? But, um, he's only eight years old. So you brought him back from Hong Kong? Uh, no, no, no. Oh. So he, um, so my wife and family uh, came back to Sydney seven or eight years ago. Right. And he was the new family pet when they came back. Um, so that was another another tough uh, tough thing I did. I was uh, commuting and uh, living away from home for seven years. So. For a little while, it's okay, but I wouldn't recommend to anybody doing it for seven years. It's just um, it's just a lot of travel and uh, being away from home. I, I missed a lot of my uh, kids growing up and that sort of thing. A lot of expats in Hong Kong certainly do that, don't they? There's a component where the family ends up moving back, and you know, there's a particular person in the family who's still working in Hong Kong till they can transition back to the right role. Yeah, sometimes it's a necessity, I guess. So. So my um, my wife and kids came back in uh, 2011, Christmas 2011, and I remember waving them off on the aeroplane saying, I'll, I'll be right behind you, uh, just got to get a job first and then I'll come back. Um, of course, that, that job never happened and um, I, I stuck it out for a couple of years uh, with uh, Deutsche Bank and, and then I thought, I'm never going to get a job. I didn't even have a single interview back in Australia. Maybe the market was a little bit slow or... Post GFC, I, I don't know what it was, but I didn't even get an interview for the jobs that I applied for. So, 
I figured I'd stay in um, Hong Kong a bit longer and applied for City and got that role and never looked back. Phil, thanks so much for providing a fantastic insight into your career, uh, leadership, mentoring, and also talking about you know life post banking uh, Royal Commission. Thanks for your time. No problem. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for listening to the show. We encourage you to subscribe and feel free to share, rate us and leave a review. If there's anything you'd specifically like us to cover, email us at markenticott at bowenpartners.com. Thank you.